bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good morning and afternoon from beautiful London. I'm uh, Tom Narayan, RBC's European Autos and Commercial Truck Analyst, and thanks for joining our session today. Uh, this is the fifth in RBC's Navigating the Energy Transition series. Today's session will be focused on exploring hydrogen mobility. We will take a closer look at four transport modes, truck, car, rail, and marine, and uh, try to determine where hydrogen applications make sense, over what time frame, what the key obstacles are, and who could be best positioned to capitalize on these themes. I'm hosting the session today with my colleague, Sebastian Kuhne, who you will hear from in a second. We want to make the session as interactive as possible, so if you do have a question, please submit it online through the system. We'll try to get through as many as possible. Uh, for the discussion on trucks and cars, we have two experts with us today. Uh, we have Mark Frimuller, uh, CEO of Hyundai Hydrogen Mobility, and Dr. Tim Lindsay, Senior Advisor at the University of Illinois. Both have many years of experience and offer perspectives from an academic and operational perspective. Uh, before we start the discussion, though, uh, here's my colleague. Yeah, good morning and good afternoon also from my side. Uh, I'm Sebastian Kühne, a research analyst here at the RBC Pan-European Industrials team. Um, and I will be hosting the uh, discussion on rail and marine. Uh, we have with us uh, Daniel Energy, the head of technology at Solaris Power Systems, as uh, well as Anise Ganbold. Um, she is a project leader at Aurora Energy Research here in uh, in Oxford and a consultancy to the UK government. Um, okay, yeah, let's just uh, jump in. Um, Maybe let's start with you, Anis. The basis of any rollout of hydrogen in transportation or mobility um, has to do or, or is driven by the availability of hydrogen. Um, you need mass-produced hydrogen. Uh, and users will eventually have to bear the cost or the price of hydrogen. Um, your company did extensive work on the cost structure um and uh, not just for the next years but for the next decades uh, could you please share your thoughts on on how competitive hydrogen is going to be in the next decades anis hello yeah we can we can come back to uh to anisia yeah. um so you know maybe we'll start with uh trucks and cars you know uh mark um you know, your JV with H2 Energy, as I understand it, is a transportation as a service model in Switzerland, where, you know, despite the large gap between diesel pricing and, and hydrogen prices, it's already economical for you. You know, uh, how is that possible? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me here and giving me the opportunity to talk about our business case here and our, our future plans. Um, highly appreciate it. Yeah, you're, you're, Tom, you're absolutely right. We have um, really a, a financially viable business set up here. And as of now, we can already offer an, an attractive alternative to diesel trucks. Um, and that is a very special situation here in Switzerland because 
on the one hand, we have higher diesel prices here. So the benchmark we have to meet is, is at a higher, higher price point. And then on the second side, there's a, on the other hand, there's a, a road tax. Um, this road tax is directly connected to the weight of the vehicle and the annual mileage. And we are talking about quite some significant money here, which we do not have to pay if the vehicle or if, you, if the operator does not have to pay if the vehicle is emission-free. And this gives us an opportunity here to really have um, a business case which already works also financially. So it's um, yeah, that's a that's a good starting point here in in Switzerland. And um, now I have to see how and to which degree that can be um, copied, so to say, into to other countries as well. Yeah, and as a, maybe as a follow up to that, I mean, obviously the next question is: you may work in Switzerland, but What's your opinion of the appetite of other governments in Europe providing this this level of support? Well, the appetite is is quite significant. There are there are very ambitious goals in regards to hydrogen strategies and becoming number one in in hydrogen ecosystems and so forth. So the 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 ambition is there. Um, there is huge funding available as well. I must say, um, uh, but when it comes to realization and bringing that really bring really vehicles on the road then it's uh <laughs> there are not that many ideas but the ambitions are absolutely there i mean it's all coming from you know co2 savings that's the that's the basic logic behind it and that's why we are also um just focusing purely on green hydrogen that means that the hydrogen we are utilizing in the truck is also just is, is created based on renewable electricity. That means we're really CO2 free along the food chain, so to say, in the in the hydrogen production, and not only just locally with um, the truck operation. Now the question is just really how are these um, how is the TCO gap I just described compared to the Swiss um, model? How is that closed in other countries? For that, probably let me. Um, I mean, it, it's important to understand that we're not selling the truck. We're, we're utilizing a pay-per-use model. That means that the customer pays a certain fee per kilometer, and that, besides the driver, includes everything. It, it includes, obviously, the operation of the vehicle, the service, warranty, and so forth, but also the hydrogen side. So the customer does not have to worry about um, where to get the hydrogen from, does it have the right quality, and so forth. So we're taking away that hazard from the from the from the from the customer and giving them really the um, yeah a, a hassle-free package, so to say. But the background of that is we're taking care of the whole ecosystem, so to say, starting from the beginning to to the end of the whole game. And I think that would be also the key to success in other countries. The government has to spend the significant um, subsidies they are planning for into a smart way to really build up an ecosystem which is sustainable and is already is is also still there once the subsidies are gone, right? And that's the that that that, that needs to be the um, yeah the, the the key driver, so to say, to build it up in a sustainable way and not just throwing money at you know certain demo projects and once the money is gone, then the demo project is gone again. Is it, is it fair to say that uh, this government support issue is the primary kind of roadblock or impediment or most important thing in terms of uh, widespread fuel cell truck adoption? Um, what about things like uh, 
you know, the technology side for fuel cells or raw materials or um, building the distribution. Uh, it, it sounds like it's like a, if you build it, they will come type thing. Is, is that fair to say? The fuel cell technology is at a, at a level where it can be utilized um, on, a, on a regular basis in, a, in regular operation. Um, the, the government subsidies are offering a chance to really make it a sustainable, a financially viable and attractive alternative, so to say. Um, so it offers an opportunity. It's not in the way. But I think where the governments needs needs to 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 change, and that's going to happen in 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 the next couple of years, um, is is the CO two um, pollution, or let's say the, the the external costs, which are generated by pollution, which the public has to bear. That this is now again directed to the ones who are causing that that um, these external costs. So in a nutshell, um, really have a CO2 taxation or CO2 penalties or benefits from not having the CO2 emission. That needs to be much, much um, stronger in focus. And also the absolute value needs to be much higher than what it is right now. I mean, currently, I think in Germany, they're discussing 25 to probably 50 euros per CO2 ton emission. If you look at the road tax, which is an indirect CO2 taxation here as well in Switzerland, we're talking about 800 euros per CO2 ton. So there's a huge, wow. huge difference between what's already in place since 20 years in Switzerland compared to what's now trying to be established in other European countries. And this, 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 this gap I guess would need to be bridged then by subsidies. Okay. But just to kickstart um, the whole thing. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Tim, you know, hydrogen mobility technology has been around for decades. You know, what's different now as it relates to truck and automotive applications? Well, uh, I think we've seen uh, uh, a number of breakthroughs. Uh, associated with uh, the, the technology itself, as well as commitments from, uh, from government uh, uh, to help build out some of the infrastructure and commitments from the private sector uh, on both the, uh, the vehicle and the, and the fueling infrastructure. Uh, in terms of technology breakthroughs, we've seen uh, considerable uh, cost reduction. The cost of fuel cells has declined about by about two thirds since 2006. Uh, this is through a combination of, of cheaper catalysts and, and uh, uh, better uh, membranes. We see better uh, durability in the technology. It's considered twice as durable now as it was 15 years ago. Um, the power density has improved greatly. Um, and, and we've seen better materials for uh, say the fuel tanks uh, going to uh, materials like carbon fiber and so forth. And then the cost of renewables, you know, with the, the, the emphasis on green hydrogen, uh, the cost of renewables to, to split water through electrolysis is, is uh, really reduced. So that's helped a lot. Um, and then uh, as, as product developers look forward, they see lots of opportunities for for innovation that can create uh, uh, additional breakthroughs. And then 
you know, government commitments from uh, European Commission, uh, Japan, China, South Korea um, are all investing heavily in the infrastructure. Uh, even in the U.S., we have uh, 15 states now committed to 100 uh, percent of all medium and heavy duty uh, vehicle sales will be uh, carbon free by 2050. Um, then uh, corporate commitments as well. Um, obviously, uh, collaboration between companies like Hyundai and Toyota and, and Nikola on standardizing the, uh, the fueling components, the fittings and so forth, uh, so they, they can uh, use it uh, across the way. Uh, then, uh, you know, and individual companies are investing in fuel and fueling infrastructure. Um, Anheuser-Busch, the beer manufacturer, is putting in uh, 28 fueling stations across their major uh, arteries in the U.S. And Nikola is committed to uh, about 700 by 700 fueling stations by 2030. And then the the oil and gas sector even is getting involved. Their, their existing uh, fuel dispensing infrastructure um, to dispense hydrogen as well. And we're seeing commitments from uh, BP, uh, Shell, and uh, Repsol in the near term are, are doing that. Shell's already doing it in some locations. So uh, the convergence of, of, of those three factors, I think, uh, are really what's what's driving it. And, and, and it's important that they, they move forward together because this is really a uh, what's referred to as a contingent innovation. And uh, it's a classic chicken egg problem. Doesn't do any good to make vehicles if there's no place to fuel them. Doesn't do any good to make fueling infrastructure if there's no vehicles. And so, with the, uh, all those uh, components of the system moving forward, I think we are really starting to achieve a critical mass point, which is really going to break out now. Great, uh, Mark. Uh, who, in your mind, is best positioned to capitalize on this opportunity? You know, within the truck uh, fuel cell truck space. We hear all about new entrants making fuel cells, also traditional suppliers making various components. Of course, the OEMs themselves, you know, truck OEMs are a rather consolidated space with only a handful of large global operators. So it makes us wonder if there's room for all these new entrants and suppliers. We also hear that, you know, the Asian truck OEMs like yourselves have an advantage over everybody else. You know, what's your view on the competitive uh, kind of dynamic of this in this industry mm. um i mean first of all i think that i mean the fuel cell technology is not something you develop within one or two years um that just needs needs time and significant amount of of money so a new player who who nobody heard before and now coming with a fuel cell he developed in the last one or one or two years i would be skeptical to be honest um and I, I wouldn't say it's the OEMs or the suppliers who would be better positioned. I think it's the company who's really taking care or at least being aware of the whole ecosystem. Because um, as we just heard, the whole chicken egg dilemma needs to be solved. So there's no point in having a brilliant truck uh, with an outstanding fuel cell if there is no supply for hydrogen or vice versa. You can build the best infrastructure in the world if there's nobody who's in need of, of the hydrogen. And pr 
prob sometimes the, the 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 best technology um is is also the most expensive technology so when we're talking for example about liquid hydrogen yeah liquid hydrogen is a good opportunity it's super um high density um and um, um, power so to say so getting longer ranges uh, longer a longer range driving range for that liquid hydrogen would be good but if you look at the overall picture from a financial and economical perspective from a customer perspective it doesn't make sense at least not as of now with the technology we have so i think the best position is the one who is really looking at the full picture and not just looking at you know his his primary business primary business and say okay i'm 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 just a truck oem so i'm just focusing on that or i'm just an electricity company so i'm just focusing on that so it's it, 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 then there need to be really alliances along this whole ecosystem i'm not saying that the company has to do everything by itself but it needs to have a look at the at the full picture so to say okay so there may or may not be a bubble happening in fuel cell makers. <laughs> um, the um, t Tim, uh, you know, there is a debate raging about, you know, whether fuel cells make sense for cars. You know, you have battery electric and you have fuel cell. We we see the break-even point of fuel cells with diesel only happening in the mid 2030s. Uh, that was a conclusion I think Anita slides was going to show. You know, by that time, battery prices for battery electric cars could could come down substantially. Uh, furthermore, you know, charging your car at home might actually be more elegant of a solution than filling a fuel cell car at the pump. And uh, you know, commuting uh, distances might not necessitate fuel cells. So the question is, do you really see fuel cells making sense for uh, for cars? Well, I think. Uh... In the near term, I think it makes a lot more sense for large applications because of the, uh, when I say large applications, I'm talking about trucking, uh, rail, maritime, and that's because of the, the weight advantages associated with uh, storing energy in, in the form of hydrogen as opposed to battery uh, storage. So in the near term, uh, I don't think it does make sense for cars. Um, but as hydrogen infrastructure is built out um, to accommodate uh, a trucking sector and uh, busing and so forth, and uh, you know, you, you think about where that will will be built. It will be along the major uh, traffic arteries, right? And so, um, as as that infrastructure is built and the cost of hydrogen continues to decline, um, it, it will begin to make a lot more sense for cars. And one model that I, I think is particularly interesting is the uh, plug-in hydrogen hybrid. I think uh, Mercedes has one of these down. Several others are working on it. So the idea here would be that, you know, it would have a battery pack, although much, much smaller maybe enough capacity to go back and forth to work or go to the market, right? And then you could plug that in at night and charge the battery pack. And so as long as you were traveling short distances, um, you could just run on the battery pack. But it would also have uh, hydrogen fuel cell capability 
Um, and this can make again can make sense as the price of hydrogen fuel cells continue to go down. Everybody talks about the price of batteries coming down, but well, the price of hydrogen fuel cells are coming down too. So uh, the idea would be then for long trips, uh, then you would be able to make use of this fueling network that was developed for uh, trucking and busing, and then you would be able to to fuel up along the way. And so the the advantage of that is when you look at plug-in hybrid vehicles now, they have redundant uh battery uh electric systems and internal combustion systems you two completely different systems um with a plug-in hydrogen hybrid uh configuration you would always be electric you wouldn't need the redundant internal combustion system the only difference would be whether or not you're running on the battery energy storage or the hydrogen energy storage and so uh, I can really see that uh, emerging, you know, a few years down the road as the hydrogen infrastructure is built out. Another thing that people need to keep in mind on the economics is frequently uh, it's looked at as just the uh, uh, price per, say, kilogram of energy, and then you compare that to fossil fuels, you compare that to, to batteries, and, and so it looks very expensive, and it is. Uh, but you also have to take into account that the hydrogen fuel cell powertrain is about twice as efficient as an internal combustion powertrain. So in, in theory, then, you can pay twice as much for the fuel uh, uh, as you do for, say, petrol, uh, but you would still be at, at cost parity. So that's, you know, again, uh, as keeps co coming up here, you have to look at it as a total life cycle, total, total system uh, uh, play here. And uh, Mark, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this debate? Yeah, I can to a certain degree agree to what was just said. Um, I probably have a different spin on it when it comes to fuel cells in the passenger car side, because I think it's not an either or. Um, both need each other to a certain degree, because if you want to bring down the prices, of future technology and the infrastructure, et cetera, you need scalability. And the scalability on the future technology and, uh, and the future systems um, is easier to get on passenger car side. With passenger car side, with passenger car numbers just being higher, so the scalability is necessary for, or for the scalability, passenger car applications are necessary as well. But infrastructure needs trucks and bigger consumers. So I think the, um, the the trucks give the perfect um, lever to to establish the infrastructure due to, to their higher hydrogen consumption. And once the infrastructure is there, passenger cars can utilize that as well. And the utilization of a fuel cell car is basically just like a regular gas or diesel um, car. And then basically it's a self-propelling system. Because at one point in time, there will be then enough demand and enough supply. But, but again, to build up the infrastructure, you need demand. And that comes certainly more from trucks than from passenger cars. But to have the scalability to bring down the costs on the fuel cell technology, you need the scalability coming from passenger cars. Okay. Perfect. Thank you, uh, uh, Mark and Tim. Uh, we try. Um, Anise again on the discussion on the uh, cost, the production cost of hydrogen uh, for the next decades and uh, the view of uh, Aurora Consultancy on that. 
I need Hopefully you can hear me now. Yes, we can. Yes. Perfect. Changed headset and everything. Sorry, um, sorry everyone for the for the delay. Um, I was originally here to set the scene for hydrogen, the whole hydrogen economy, and it's related to a question that was answered by Mark, which was, how does a company succeed in the hydrogen space? They can't just know about one small bit of, of the hydrogen economy. You need to know where demand is going, where the prices are going, who's going to supply the hydrogen where the market is going. Um, and that's what I was uh, invited to speak about. So on the first slide, I just wanted to show um, who, who, who am I and what, where do I come from. I work for Aurora Energy Research. We do energy modeling analytics for all of the different energy commodities. And for the last two years, we've been looking in detail about hydrogen. So I will talk about where um, hydrogen prices are going because you need to know where the hydrogen prices themselves are going in order to know when is this hydrogen and mobility going to be kicking off. So on the next slide, I'll start talking about where the costs for blue hydrogen are going to go. Um, blue hydrogen is hydrogen that's made from natural gas, either through steam reformation, autothermal reforming. Um, and overall, the cost of blue hydrogen between now and 2050, we expect is going to be relatively stable. On the left-hand side, I'm showing you what makes up the actual cost for hydrogen. And it's shown as LCOH, which is the levelized cost. You can see that um, hydrogen is made of the typical cost, so capex, uh, fixed operating, operation and maintenance cost, variable operation and maintenance cost. But the biggest cost towards making blue hydrogen now and in the future is going to be the cost of your fuel, which is natural gas. Um, you also have to pay a little bit for the carbon. And of course, in order for this to be blue hydrogen, low carbon hydrogen, as opposed to to gray hydrogen, you need to pay for some sort of carbon capture and storage. So overall, these are the elements that make up the cost of blue hydrogen. And natural gas makes up a significant chunk of the cost of blue hydrogen. So naturally, where blue hydrogen costs are going to go between now and 2050 is really driven by where gas prices are going to be going. Um, yeah, and on the right-hand side, I show two different types of blue hydrogen technology. One is steam methane reforming, or SMR for short, and one is autothermal reforming. And you can see during our forecast period, the cost of blue hydrogen is going to be relatively stable around the two and a half to $3 mark. And then at, in the next slide, I'll do the same thing for green hydrogen. But before I just show you a chart showing where green hydrogen costs are going to go between now and 2050, um, you have to understand that the green hydrogen cost is really variable and it really de depends on how you are running your electrolyzer. So before I just show you a, a chart showing this is the green hydrogen cost till 2050, I wanted to explain one factor that really determines green hydrogen costs, and that is how you run your electrolyzer. If you have an electrolyzer and you are only going to run it 10% of the time, so only 10% of the hours of the year, you can decide to only run in those hours where power prices are extremely low. And in some countries like Germany, you see power prices going negative. So theoretically, running your electrolyzer at very low load factors Capitalizing on extremely low power prices means you can make extremely cheap hydrogen. 
However, if you're running your electrolyzer only 10% of the time, that means that you are averaging out or spreading out your CapEx cost over very few hours, which means actually the CapEx component is extremely high. Therefore, we don't think running an electrolyzer less than 10% of the time makes any sense at all because your CapEx costs on a levelized basis would be way too high. On the other end of the spectrum, if you have an electrolyzer and you are running it 100% of the time, so basically flat out, the power price you're paying if you're running 100% of the time is basically the whole wholesale power price. You have no flexibility. You're just a price taker and you're exposed to the, the wholesale market. Um, and we discovered in our modeling, because we do quite detailed power sector modeling, that actually the sweet spot for your electrolyzer in order to minimize your overall levelized cost is kind of around the 40% mark. So if you're running your electrolyzer only 40% of the time, you are capturing the 40% cheapest power prices in the year, but you're producing enough hydrogen over the lifetime of your electrolyzer in order to spread your capex cost out into a low enough level. And you kind of have to bear this in mind um, when you hear electrolyzer targets being set by countries. So if you have in Europe an electrolyzer target of 40 gigawatts, but what our, what our analysis shows is that the best way to run your electrolyzer is only to run it less than half, half the time. You're, only, you're not gonna be producing as much hydrogen as these strategies are expecting. Um, so now that I've explained um, electrolyzer economics and how to run your electrolyzer, now I can go to the final slide where I show the comparison between the cost of blue hydrogen and the cost of green hydrogen. Um, and because green hydrogen is so variable, I have two lines for green hydrogen. So on this chart, I'm showing you the levelized cost of green and blue hydrogen between now and 2050. This is for Great Britain. Um, and you can see the blue hydrogen cost, as I said, is going to be pretty stable between now and 2050. Um, CapEx costs for blue hydrogen are coming down, but at the same time, gas prices are coming up over time, which means pretty stable development. For green hydrogen, I've chosen to show two different types. One, I've labeled grid-connected flexible electrolyzer, which is a mouthful. But this is an electrolyzer that is connected to the power grid, which means it pays the power price on the wholesale market. But it is flexible, meaning it can change its load factor to capitalize on the lowest power prices. So in Germany, for example, it would be running at 40%, as I showed on the, on the previous slide. Then I've chosen to show an offshore co-located electrolyzer, which means an electrolyzer that is connected to an offshore wind farm, and it is taking power from this offshore wind farm, which means that its load factor is constrained by the load factor of this offshore wind farm. Um, but it's not getting this power for free because power produced by a wind farm isn't for free um, because the wind farm can choose to sell the power to the electrolyzer or it can choose to sell the power to the grid. And so we don't assume this electrolyzer, um, this power is completely free. There is a cost associated to it. You can see for both of the green hydrogen types that I've chosen, the cost right now is much higher than blue hydrogen because basically the capex of electrolyzers, the actual technology of electrolyzers is still quite expensive and quite a new technology.
But actually, over time, the costs are going to come down. CapEx costs will come down because there'll be efficiency gains, technological learnings, um, improvements there. As well as what we've been talking about so far in this webinar, power prices are going to be coming down because there's going to be more renewables penetration in the grid in Europe and other countries as well. And we are forecasting that by 2035, 2036, green hydrogen will be cheaper than blue hydrogen, purely based on an economics basis. So we're not assuming any sort of subsidies here, anything skewing the market, purely based on economics. If you're buying low carbon hydrogen in the year 2040, the cheapest source is going to be green hydrogen. And that'll be a complete change of story from where we are now, where blue or gray hydrogen is just by far the cheapest source. Um, so kind of setting the scene here for the discussion, I know I'm a bit late, but um, showing where is the cheapest source of hydrogen, where do we think this kind of low carbon hydrogen economy is going to kick off? And that's kind of be um, the mid to late 2030s for green. Anis, thank you so much for, for, for this discussion. Uh, it surprises me a little bit that the cost of hydrogen stays so high, even in 2050. I mean, we're still talking, uh, what was it, uh, uh, $3 uh, per, per kilogram, which is about, I don't know, four or five times the cost of diesel for the same co content. Um, in, in, in your calculation, you use LNG, you use the grid electric costs, but if we think like really far out and say, okay, 20 years from now, we have a solar farm in Libya or a wind farm in Chile, like the ultra low cost uh, producer of, of green hydrogen, and, and you just look at the CapEx cost and you run these facilities for 20 years, I mean, what would be the lowest, let's say, theoretical cost for, for hydrogen in your view? Um, we did exactly that research that you mentioned. So Europe wants to have a lot of hydrogen demand and they won't necessarily produce it themselves. And so we looked at exactly those countries you mentioned, countries that are saying in their strategies or in their policies, we want to produce hydrogen for the export market. So Russia, for example, wants to export a lot of hydrogen. So does Morocco, so does Chile, so does Australia. And so in one of our studies, we looked at um, what is the cheapest source of hydrogen on a global basis? And we found mm -hmm. that actually you can get hydrogen, low carbon hydrogen, theoretically very cheaply from Morocco. Morocco has very low power prices. Um, its power market is set by a new coal plant as well as renewables. And Morocco is talking about partner has partnered with Germany to produce low carbon hydrogen. Um, so we found that the price actually that could be reached by Morocco um, green hydrogen is probably two thirds of the cost of European green hydrogen. So much cheaper. Um, but the then when you, when you start importing. Um, or one tax. The, the, yeah, the so if, you, if a country yeah. wants to push for green hydrogen now, um, they need to they need to subsidize, either on the supply side or on the demand side. Understood. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, we have to move on uh, a little bit behind schedule. Um, Daniel, <laughs> uh, after hearing the uh, the use of uh, hydrogen in, in cars and trucks and the cost structure, um, 
what is your view on on the use of hydrogen in rail and marine and basically the bigger applications or, or let's say heavy load applications uh, what can you what can you uh, tell us there yeah i think um, i would in my case add a bit more complexity because it, i think on the so-called off-highway applications we name two of them um we believe hydrogen will play a key role in decarbonization because then they are very high power applications up to several megawatts you need to power and uh, they are not uh, the, the option to you um, let's say direct electrification just to give you an example one if you take a 10 2 megawatt engine and a marine application for example one of our engines run it for eight hours you would need 100 tons of batteries so energy density is the key and that brings us to the fuel and the challenge is, is there that uh, let's say diesel still has uh, like like 70 percent more energy density than other fuels like hydrogen or things we discussed um so if we think on hydrogen we would go also or we need fuels made out of green hydrogen so for us hydrogen means always direct use of hydrogen and as a large part of our applications will made by synthesized fuels, so about fuels, so where you take the green hydrogen and you further process it to, to a diesel, synthetic diesel type or, or methanol or things like that. So we, we see also in our market, like for marine, I think we will need and we'll see besides hydrogen also um, high density versions of it, like for the synthesized products. And so, maybe to add, and that's maybe was just the fuel side, and then it brings us to the topic that we need new, uh, let's say, power converters. Because um, I mentioned clearly, diesel could run on an engine like today, but if we go, for example, to methanol, or we, I believe there is a share of hydrogen also, then we're talking about uh, new energy converters, so then we. Uh, engine running on hydrogen, for example, or I see diffuser too in, in those type of applications. So fuel cell is clearly not, uh, you know, suitable for all types of heavy load applications in the near, well, in the next 20 years, let's say. Exactly. I think in our case, we need always to think on, 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 on propulsion systems. So we will see we will see a battery coming into play, like like hybrid applications or hybrid propulsion systems we, we know from today from passenger cars, and the fuel cell will also enter. Give you an example: if you go for marine, and maybe uh, you you need always a lot of so-called hotel load. So you run you under harbor, and you run uh, you need to power your your systems, the, the climate uh, or cooling on the ship, whatever, and that uh, would be a very good opportunity and that's maybe the first applications we will see in marine where they can be done um, by by a fuel cell um, because then you need not need to do run on full power so the main engine or the main propulsion will be done by engine still but like hotel load then emission free and then noise free so that's uh, would be let's say the trigger point the first application we see on on, on the power side of, of ships what about, uh, let's say, a um, uh, locomotive that has uh, 100 trains behind or 100 wagons behind it and carries a heavy load of iron ore 2,000 miles far? 
um, what would be the best application for this? And similarly, uh, if you have a, let's say a merchant ship that has to run for a week or two weeks, uh, what are the most likely, let's say, future or how do you get the hydrogen in those type of applications yeah i think that that would be the classical application where we still believe it will be mainly driven and like the main propulsion coming still from an engine at least in the next decades for sure and but the question remains how you get co2 neutral with that and that's then uh, the topic where you need uh, synthesized fuel so you take the hydrogen you make a diesel out of that so methanol is another option which is, is discussed kind of a sweet spot um maybe but uh, clearly that that would be the classical one way go for synthetic e-diesel mm -hmm. and the, the imo has very sharp targets for uh, co2 emissions in the global ship or global marine market uh with you know, like cutting co2 emissions by half by 2050 and that means you probably have to launch these CO2 neutral ships very soon, right? This has to come very fast now. Exactly. And you should just take into account, and that's maybe valid for all other offer applications that you usually have a renewable rate in the fleet of 2 to 3%. Um, that's maybe different to the passenger car side. Um, that clearly brings you to the point if you want to have an impact in 2050. You need to have commercial available solutions in 2030. There might be still a more expensive and need subsidiaries, but you need to start by that. And if you go then, let's say, calculate down uh, when you need to have a technology decision, because you need to order the ship to plan it, and you're maybe five years from now. So that, that's therefore quite interesting situation at the moment, mm -hmm. because 2030 is in that perspective not far away. Yeah, um, I have one more question on rail, and then we will jump into the Q and A. Um, so everyone dialing in, just uh, write your questions down, and we will try to answer as many as possible. Um, Daniel, uh, on rail, there is already applications for fuel cell, yeah, for um, commuter trains, or at least uh, it's in the test phase. Um, where would you see like most likely applications for fuel cells in trains? And uh, where do you think, yeah, where do you think it's more problematic to 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 get this uh, the fuel cells starting in in the rail? Yeah, I, I see um, really the fuel cell in, in for rail uh, in commu local commuter trains um, because from the one hand side um, they are not completely dominated by by um, the fuel cost and. Um, the cost of the fuel cell itself and they have and that's maybe one important thing infrastructure that's something you can more easily solve if you're a local uh, commuter train and you have maybe some one or two central refilling stations and, and that, that's one key why we see that that these are the first projects in that area and, and also energy density and, and maybe the opportunity to even uh, do a, a refill twice or once a day. And so the, it, it will start for sure there. And as you, as you mentioned already, and really the heavy load locomotives, there will be for really coming decades, probably stay on, on, on or, or probably stay on, on the engine and then may working with the, with the e-diesel or e-diesel drive. 
Mm -hmm. Understood. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, I have more questions here, but uh, I would suggest, Tom, that we uh, go to the yeah. Q&A session uh, first. Maybe you can ask the first question. Yeah. Yeah, lots of questions. Thanks for uh, the audience for, for, for these questions. Uh, I guess uh, here's one I think for, uh, for Mark. Um, on top of subsidies, have you looked at how governments could make up for the lost revenue from licensing and taxing diesel freight and, uh, and trucks? The, the, whole, the whole taxation is, um, well, let, me, let, let me start at, an, at another point. <clears throat> It depends on strongly what um, what's transported, because um, we have a couple of customers who say, "Kind of, I don't care if there are additional costs. Um, my customers will pay for that because um, they have sustainability goals, for example, which needs to be fulfilled, and um, their end customers are willing to pay for that as well. Right? So you don't even have to work with any kind of taxation." Um, Sometimes the customer, depending on again what's transported, sometimes even the customers are willing to pay for for for, for the gap. But when it comes to taxation, obviously CO two taxation is definitely something which will come, um, and 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 also diesel subsidies also on the taxation side needs to needs to get get smaller because it's kind of weird to on the one hand you want to the governments want to push. Um, an, an environmental friendly technologies, but then subsidize the non-environmental um, friendly technologies. So the whole taxation side needs to be adjusted as well. That's not going to happen from you know one day to another. That needs to take some time, obviously, but it needs to be done. Not sure if that answers the question properly, but if Sebs doesn't have one, um, yeah, you yeah, okay. Yeah, Tom, you can ask the next. Okay. Yeah, here's one I think for Tim. We kind of answered this, but um, is there a, a first mover advantage between lithium-powered batteries and hydrogen fuel cells in the auto industry? And is there a need for this given how advanced Tesla already is? Yeah, that, that's a fair point. Uh, I, I think there clearly has been a, a first mover advantage um for for battery electric vehicles and i think uh that's evident when when uh, at least here in the states when we look at um incentives for electrifying uh, vehicle fleets uh, they tend to be focused on things like charging stations and and so forth and then there will be a, a qualifier at the bottom and this can be used for hydrogen infrastructure as well well anybody on this call knows that's not a a fair comparison uh, but when you look at, at larger vehicles, let's say a Class 8 semi-truck, uh, the, uh, the advantages of hydrogen are, are overwhelming. I know uh, Carnegie Mellon did a comparison between the Tesla semi and the, the Nikola semi, and uh, the Tesla semi, I mean, the, the battery pack weighs 13 tons. That's for a, uh, a truck that has a 40-ton payload capacity, so almost a third of your payload capacity tied up with the battery pack, which I can I can replace that with 160 pounds of hydrogen um, in, a, in a fuel cell powered truck. So that frees up all that payload. Uh, then when you consider the uh, additional range that you get, I think the, uh, 
Hydrogen powered semi has a 500 to 700 mile range, depending on the fuel tank size, compared to a 300 to 500 mile range for a, uh, a battery semi truck. Um, and then uh, the charging time uh, is longer. So if you're in the uh, trucking business and you want to keep that, you want to keep your assets on the road and stop as infrequently as possible, there, there are huge, van huge advantages there as well. I think you, you see the same uh, types of comparisons with uh, uh, buses, large uh, uh, buses, uh, any large vehicle, really mining trucks, you see the same thing. So um, yeah, there are first mover advantages, uh, but there are, there are considerable challenges moving forward with batteries. Their price declines uh, uh, aren't as great as they have been. The, the, that curve is flattening out, right? And uh, there are challenges in the supply chain as well for, uh, you know, not so much for lithium, but for cobalt in particular that goes into lithium ion batteries. There are huge uh, challenges there. Uh, equity issues, uh, most of that material is mined in the, in the DRC by child labor. Um, and then the fact that uh, very little of lithium ion batteries is recycled when they reach the end of their life. So, um, yeah, there is a, they've had a first mover advantage, but uh, I really see that closing down particularly, and it will start with the big vehicles. And then as, as uh, breakthroughs continue in hydrogen and prices continue to decline both on the equipment and the fuel side, I think it becomes much more competitive. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Tim. Another question uh, from the audience on the uh, transportation of um, hydrogen or hydrogen-related products uh, from Chile, Morocco, Australia. Um, hydrogen itself is very difficult to condense, and I think the question goes to Anis here. Hydrogen is very difficult to condense, therefore very expensive to transport. Um, would that not mean that as soon as you uh, produce something in Chile, you have to convert it to e-diesel or methane and then Put it on a on a on a on a carrier ship and then transport it to Europe, which means lots of conversion losses again. So, do the calculations still make sense to say I want to outsource to cheap hydrogen countries and I still get the hydrogen product at a cheap price, or or is it better to really produce in Europe? Exactly. We did the exact same analysis. So we looked at the actual delivered cost to a theoretical consumer in Germany. Um, and we looked at 10 countries globally and how much it would cost to produce it, convert it, get it ready for transportation, transport it, and then convert it back to hydrogen if necessary. And one of the main conclusions we found is actually, yes, it is cheaper to take hydrogen from Morocco, put it on a ship, uh, convert it to ammonia, put it on a ship, send it to Germany, in Germany, convert that ammonia back to hydrogen, that is still cheaper than producing green hydrogen in Germany. And, and that was quite a surprising. Yeah. Yeah, and that was quite a surprising result. Is the, is the sun, is sun power, or what's the original source for the electricity? Sun yeah, power for our Morocco, we're sun. assuming that it's sol a solar power plant in Morocco. Well, uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Another question. And we explored uh, all of the different. Sorry. Sorry, and we explored all the different options. So there are different ways of transport, different ways of conversion. So we played around with the different options. Very good. Uh, another question on the on the infrastructure, and that goes to Daniel. 
Um, you indicated that already a little bit with your rail uh, example. Uh, the infrastructure for rail operators and ships for hydrogen might be much cheaper per ton mileage, let's say, uh, compared to trucks because you have these centralized hubs. Uh, would that mean that you think a fuel cell usage becomes much or uh, becomes economical much earlier than what you would think for the truck market or auto market or other applications? Would you think that moves significantly the uh, the break-even points forward? Um, I, I think it's maybe not directly economical. Uh, okay, in some sense, the, 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 the price of the transport is, is the fuel is correct, but it's just the availability. And for, for train, for local train, it's clear it can be solved for marine. And um, if, if you have a ferry, maybe, that can also be solved because the ferry has two harbors. And it's just, I think it's more a matter that you get availability. And if you then think on marine more on a global scale, so for like deep sea shipping or ships that they operate in different harbors, then it changes completely. Then, for example, methanol is very attractive because today you have already fossil methanol infrastructure there for, for different purposes. So you can easily fill in that infrastructure also green methanol. And, and that, that, that's a part of, of the, the picture why, why it, in our case gets a bit more complicated um, because um, the, if you look on the more synthesis fuels, there are some fuels like methanol that have quite already infrastructure and hydrogen has no infrastructure for fat, and therefore you have to dis um, distinguish between the different applications. So it's not generally marine um, hydrogen would be option. But the trigger is really availability because the customer from us, he will he will ask for the price, it's clear, but he also asks, do I have the availability? And for marine, if you have not a global availability and you have a ship which wants to operate globally, that's just rule it, rules it out. So and just for ferries, yes, yes for ferries, but a no for global shipping, for, for merchant shipping, let's say, at this stage. No, that, that's, again, it's another argument. We talked about energy density, that trans uh, availability, or it, it, it's, it, let's say the, the next topic, uh, which we believe in deep sea shipping, we will see synthesized fuels, and even ammonia is discussed directly used as a fuel. Um, so really, um, yeah, the, the main part, there will be a synthesized fuel, which which will be take the main part in the market. That's why we leave today. Understood. Thank you very much. Uh, a question, I think, for uh, from Mark. Uh, why is there such a reluctance from the manufacturers to accept blue uh, H2 as a feedstock? Well, I mean, f um... In Switzerland, we start with purely green hydrogen because, as I said, um, emission-free vehicles are exempted from low taxation. Um, and they are exempted because there's no CO2 emission. Now, if we would go with green or, sorry, with blue or gray hydrogen, the vehicle is still emission-free, but in the whole process, there will be um, CO2 emission. And I think the government at one point in time is smart enough to say, okay, um, you're running locally emission-free or CO2 emission-free, 
their CO2 emission in the process. So then probably they will withdraw this this exemption from the regulation or put another um, a certain fee on it. And that will make the whole business case um, more complicated or more difficult. So I think all this, and, and that's true then also, that's the example for Switzerland, but I think that's true also for, for um for other countries because the government subsidies which we need to kickstart the whole process and building up this ecosystem is based on co2 emission reduction and in blue and gray hydrogen there is still co2 um and we had a discussion with for example andreas scheuer the um, uh, minister of transportation in germany and um he was very clear in his statement that the subsidies will be only paid if green hydrogen is is utilized and not or blue. Great. Uh, oh, uh, I think Anise has a comment. Oh, I just wanted to add to that question, just from a technical perspective, when you produce hydrogen using steam methane reforming or ATR, so blue hydrogen, um, what mm. you get is not pure hydrogen. It's 99.9% .9 pure, but green hydrogen gets you to much purer levels. And for a lot of industrial uses, and fuel cells, um, blue hydrogen is just not pure enough. You need to pay for extra purification at the end, which makes them much more expensive. Oh, very interesting. All right, I think we have run out of time. Um, that concludes our session. And thank you so much to our panelists. Uh, I think this has been really great. Uh, just as a, a save, to save the date, uh, the next Navigating the Energy Transition Series uh, we'll be on February 18th. We'll focusing on. We'll be focused on financing renewable projects. With that, thank you for joining us today. Have a great day. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.